Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12 this evening, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, page 809 in the Blue Bible if you have one of those. And we have in this section the first great sermon in the New Testament by our Lord Jesus Christ, and we see a series of blessings in here called the Beatitudes, and we get that that name from a, from the Latin word for that, but often you could people think of it as beautiful attitudes, the beatitudes, the beautiful attitudes that we have here from the Lord Jesus Christ given to us, and they show us the character of the Christian, what the Christian should look like as they walk in this world. And so let's read from verses one down through twelve. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Lord, as we come now to your word, we ask that you would guide us by your spirit and give us insights and wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Andrew Murray was born in 1828 in South Africa. He was a writer and a minister there. And he believed that the chief end of the church was missions, was mission was to get out there with the gospel. And he was also known for his personal piety and for his holy living and the way that he lived, a very exemplary life. And he was sent off to Aberdeen, Scotland to, to, uh, to school there and his education. He remained there until he had finished his master's degree, get this, at, at the age of 17. 17, done his schooling, done his master's degree. And from there, he went to the University of Utrecht to study theology, and he was ordained in the Dutch Reformed Church there. And then he went back to South Africa, to Cape Town, and he, he was uh, married, and he also pastored in several different churches in South Africa. He died at the age of 88 in 1917. Now, the reason I bring up Andrew Murray is because while I was reading this past week on the topic that we're speaking on tonight, I discovered some interesting facts about him, particularly as it pertains to the legacy that he left, not only in his vocational ministry, but also in his family. Listen to the impact that he and Mrs. Murray, I'm sure, had a good impact on the children as well, but listen to the impact that they had on children and their grandchildren. Five Of his six sons became ordained ministers. Four of his daughters became ministers' wives. Ten grandsons became ministers. And 13 grandchildren became missionaries. That's amazing. That's an amazing legacy for one man, for one man and wife to have 
what a legacy that is. It is incredible to think about the influence that they had within their own family, let alone the ministry in all these different uh, churches that they were in, probably thousands of different people over his lifetime ministering to, and yet this impact on his own family is quite incredible. Now that doesn't mean if your children are not pastors or missionaries that you failed as a parent. The legacy that you leave them simply by living a godly life, seeking to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is very, very worthwhile, whether you are a pastor or missionary or not. That is aside from this. But it is incredible to see that the life of Andrew Murray, as he's known for his piety and for his wisdom, living out the biblical principles that we see even here in the Beatitudes, had a tremendous impact on those who were around him. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, it's a passage, uh, in this passage that we've just read, part of the Sermon on the Mount, we see here that Jesus Christ has an influence in the lives of people, many people. He's just called some of the disciples um, in chapter 4. He has people flocking to him for healings that we see at the end of the chapter there. And so we see that his influence is growing, His ministry is beginning to flourish and starting to snowball. He's got a group of disciples gathered together here. He's got other people, crowds that are wanting to listen to him. And so this was quite profound as they were the original hearers of this particular sermon. And now for us, 2,000 years later and down through the ages, this has been a very profound portion of the word of God that many people have been blessed by. But we also see that Jesus not only had a tremendous influence on these particular people, but we see that the people that Jesus influences, he wants them to then go on to influence other people. And so the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes that we've just read and we're going to talk about here over the course of the next 20 or so minutes, these are tremendously impactful ways for us to have influence in our world, for us to be counter-cultural, Because as we read here, a lot of these things just don't seem to make sense as we read them. And we're going to talk about that just in one second here. But we see that Jesus gathers together the disciples in these crowds. He's got them all there. And when you look at the mount that they tradition says where Jesus preached this particular sermon. It's not really a mountain the way that we would envision mountains. We have the coast mountains here. We have tons of mountains around. We know what mountains look like. And when you're up on this hillside uh, where they believe that the Sermon on the Mount was preached, it's probably about half the size of Burnaby Mountain. That is the mountain. So it's really much more of a mountain of a sermon than it is a Sermon on the Mount because it's not much of a mountain. But when you stand up there, as I've had the privilege to be, There's a bit of a plain on the top of this mountain, and it's kind of a three-sided bowl area, so you could envision the way someone could speak to perhaps even thousands of people and have their voice echoing throughout that area to be able to be heard by all these different people. And so it is an amazing thing to be up there and to envision this particular part of Scripture happening where tradition says that it happened. And so we see also that Jesus is seated He sat down to give his sermon. We stand up to give sermons. They sat down. Now, why did they sit down? Why would they sit down? Well, because rabbis always sat down when they taught. If they were walking 
teaching, if they were, if they were just uh, kind of milling about and talking with one another, that what didn't have the authority that it had. That was more casual than it is if someone is seated and they're teaching that way. And so they had this chair, this seat that he would have been seated on to be able to give the sermon, probably a rock. But you can think about it in terms of what we have in universities and professors. We could say so-and-so is the, has the certain chair. And that is where they get the idea from, this chair of teaching. And so it is a symbol of authority. And what we see here when Jesus sat down and delivered the sermon is that he spoke from a divine chair. He was divinely seated with that position of absolute authority as a sovereign king. And so Jesus is speaking and he's making a declaration about the state of those who are in the kingdom of God. This is not telling us how to get into the kingdom of God. We don't, we don't seek to fulfill all of these, uh, these beatitudes and then see how well we're doing at the end of them to see whether or not we're in the kingdom of God. Okay, so we've got to make sure that we get that clear. This is the state of those who are in the kingdom of God, who are believers, who are Christians. And we see first off the repetition of the word blessed throughout the text that we've just read, beginning in verse 3 through verse 9. We see this repeated over and over again. And each of the Beatitudes open with that word blessed. And so that is point number one in the sermon tonight. What a Christian is, and that is blessed. We are blessed as the people of God. And so we see that here talked about. It's not about feelings. We can feel blessed, but what Jesus is talking about is not about feelings, but it is about who we are. It's an objective statement about what God thinks about us. D.A. Carson says this, Blessed is a positive judgment by God on the individual that means to be approved or to find approval. When God blesses us, he approves us. He approves us. He approves of us as his followers, as his children. He blesses us. He approves us. And of course, God's blessings bring feelings, but this blessedness is a pronouncement of what we actually are, and that is approved of God, approved by God. A Christian is blessed with God's approval. And another thing we note is that some of these don't seem to make sense. There seem to be a bit of a paradox going on here. Now let's see, if you look down at the text, the blessed person is the one who's poor in spirit, the one who mourns, the one who is meek, the one who gets persecuted. That doesn't sound like blessing, does it? That sounds like a life of misery, not blessing. And so if we look at it from a worldly perspective, that is the, the thing that we envision here. That we see these paradoxes, we, th- we see these things, these supposed blessings that don't seem to add up. And so if we were worldly people and we wanted to write the Beatitudes, it would probably sound something like this. Blessed are the wealthy. Blessed are the healthy. Blessed are the good-looking. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are those who never encounter trials. But that's not what we see here. We see something very, very different. And here's something else to note. These are progressive. As we go through the Beatitudes, you can see that they are building upon one another. And so let's begin and see if that is the case. So point number two, what a Christian is to be like. We see that in verses three through nine. 
The first two Beatitudes in verse 3 and 4 speak about those who've entered the kingdom. Christians, already believers, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit, they know their spiritual condition. They know that they are destitute spiritually. And it means that we see ourselves as we really are. The way that God would have seen us in our sinfulness, in our sinful state. That we are by nature lost and hopeless and helpless. And we see God and we see ourselves and we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. That we, we look at God's holiness, we look at our sinfulness, and we see how truly sinful we are. So those who recognize their spiritual poverty are then led to the second beatitude. They mourn over their sinful condition. And both of these speak about repentance, that feeling of sorrow, despair, that we failed God, that we are separated from God, that we need the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our only way and our only hope of salvation. And so we turn from sin and we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is repentance. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So here Jesus is not addressing the sorrow or the grief that we have in times of bereavement. That's not the mourning he's talking about. He's talking about a mourning over our sinful condition, over our sin. The Bible tells us that there is comfort for those who are grieving and and are bereaved. But here he's talking about, he's referencing the sorrow of repentance. Blessed are those who mourn over their sins. They will be comforted. How are we comforted? Through the gospel. And now we come to verse 5, the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When you hear the word meek, perhaps the wrong thing comes into your mind. Perhaps you think that meekness is weakness. It sounds like somebody who's gutless. But that's not what it's talking about. The term meek actually means power that is harnessed, power under control. So you could think about uh, a sports car, perhaps an F1 car, racing car. You could think about all of that power that's there. But yet, who is behind the wheel? A professional driver who can harness that power. And that is the essence of what meekness is. It is power under control. It's humble, it's gentle. Meekness is not weakness. It's power that's under control. And it's the opposite of violence and vengeance and bitterness. And so then Jesus talks in verse 6 about blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's an evidence that we are in the kingdom. The worldly person doesn't hunger and thirst after righteousness. The non-Christian doesn't hunger and thirst after righteousness. The believer does. And so if we do not hunger and thirst after righteousness, we need to examine our hearts to see if we truly are believers in the Lord Jesus. Now stop for a minute as we've gotten this far, and I want you just to see the flow of what is happening here. Remember, we said that, that the, the, the Beatitudes build upon one another. So let's see if that is the case. So we look down at verse 3. We recognize our, our spiritual poverty before God, and you have no hope of your own. We see that. No claim of righteousness of our own, and it causes us to mourn over our sinful condition. And that brings not pride, but a humility to us, a meekness. 
And then you start developing a hunger and a thirsting after righteousness. So we are changing our appetites. We have a spiritual appetite instead of a fleshly appetite. And we crave that more and more. And that is the difference between someone who is spiritually mature and immature. The spiritually immature person doesn't hunger and thirst after this righteousness that the mature person does. And so if we feed the Spirit, then we grow spiritually and we want more spiritual food. If we feed the flesh, we're going to want to feed the flesh more and more and we become weaker and weaker spiritually. And so the question for us tonight is, what do we crave? What are we craving? Are we hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Or do we just snack on righteousness on a Sunday? And then the rest of the week, we starve ourselves. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Here Jesus is saying that those who are a part of the kingdom are not to be condemners, but to be merciful to those around them. Now we should condemn sin. That is something we should be condemners of. And we should speak up against that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. It's saying that our general disposition in life should be mercy. Why? Because God has been so merciful to us in his dealings. So God is merciful and we are to be imitators of God. And so we grow in these characteristics of godliness. And one of those is mercy. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. So those who are conscious of being unworthy recipients of God's mercy and grace then reflect that in their dealings with other people. And in our culture, we see that there is no mercy. It has no mercy for other people. This is very counter-cultural. And we get this even from the Lord Jesus Christ, who when he was reviled, he did not revile, but in return committed his cause to him who judges justly. That was the disposition of the Lord Jesus Christ. The meek and the merciful person says, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm going to show mercy and compassion because I know that that other person is a sinner too and they need mercy and grace as much as I do and God has shown that to me. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me and so we show that mercy and grace towards other. And Jesus continues, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We could say this is happy are the holy. Happy are the holy. How can I develop this purity of heart? Well, we need to stay in the word of God. We need to walk in the spirit of God. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. We need to walk with God and come consistently and continually to God in prayer. In Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon wrote, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and men. Write these on the tablet of your heart. In other words, remember them. Remember them. Don't just read things and then go away and not think about them any longer, but remember them. And notice that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the pure in behavior, or blessed are the pure in speech, but blessed are the pure in heart. Why? Because if God has your heart, then your behavior, your speech is going to follow, or it should follow from that. So if he begins in the core of our being, in our heart, the inner person, that will typically work its way out to the outer person, inside out. 
Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it proceed the issues of life. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is part of our calling as Christians, and that is to be peacemakers. Now, how do we do that? Well, there's four different ways of peacemaking. One is salvation. We make peace with God. We come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We make peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The second is evangelism. You help other people to have peace with God. You introduce them to the Lord Jesus Christ so that they too can have peace with God, sharing the gospel. The third is reconciliation. You become a peacemaker by making sure you're right with other people. We can have a disagreement perhaps or not see eye to eye or have friction with a brother or sister. And so we go to them. We want things to be cleared up. We don't want to, to leave these things lingering as much as it is possible within us. What lies within us, we should be at peace with all men. And sometimes you can do everything you can and the other person doesn't want to uh, be at peace with you. And so, but we need to do our part to make that happen. And then the fourth area we can become peacemakers is mediation. We help other people to be at peace with other people. There could be a disagreement that's happening between two people that we know and we become a bridge to be able to be a peacemaker and to bring a peace where there is conflict. So that's what it means to be a peacemaker. Now there's a big difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Peacekeeping means that you're just going to uh, just kind of get along and go along with things. Peacekeeping means that you might just sweep things under the carpet because it's difficult to have uh, these conversations. But, But being a peacemaker is completely different. We have the hard conversations so that we can bring peace and unity between uh, brothers and sisters. Okay, so again, let's recap and go over these things and let's build them upon one upon another all the way back into verse 3. You start out, you're poor in spirit. And then you mourn over your spiritual condition, your sinful condition. Asking God for forgiveness, you become meek, you become humbled by these things. Then you start developing a new appetite for spiritual things. You're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And when you do, you become more and more like God. You're becoming merciful in the other attributes. You're pure in heart. And you help people make peace with one another and with God. And so that's what Christianity looks like. That's what the Christian life looks like here in the Beatitudes. A Christian is blessed And a Christian is to live out the Beatitudes with God's help in the power of the Holy Spirit. And for those who live that way, what can they expect? What can they expect? Comfort and ease? Is that what the Christian can expect? Well, let's read verses 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You mean to tell me that we are going to walk this way, we're going to seek to live out the, all of these uh, different beatitudes, and for our reward, we are going to receive reviling? and persecution, and all kinds of evil, all these different things that are happening here? 
Well, on the one hand, yes, we could say, yes, that is going to happen as a result of living out the Beatitudes. That's what a Christian can expect. We're going to be noticed if we are going to live that way. And one commentator says you're going to be noticed by heaven, you're going to be noticed by people, and you're going to be noticed by hell. You're going to be noticed by heaven. Heaven will notice. That's the word blessed. God is going to notice when we are walking and living in this way. And secondly, people are going to notice. They will call you sons and daughters of God. We see that at the end of verse 9. It's a powerful witness to the outside world to walk in this way. We will be different. We will be people that are noticed. We will have influence. And then thirdly, if you live like this, hell also will notice. Not just heaven and not just other people, but hell will take notice. And that brings persecution. People are not going to like it when we live in this way. When you live in this way, as Jesus has, has described, we are going to receive persecution. We are going to be running counter to the culture. And the Christian is in an unending and irreconcilable war in this world. And so we will be different, we will be noticed, and there will be clashes. We're going to clash with the culture by walking in this manner. And so remember what Paul said to Timothy, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is a result of living a godly life. We will suffer persecution. Not might, not might, but you will be persecuted. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. He assumes that you will be, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And we see that qualifying statement there, falsely on my account. And we see in verse 11, Jesus said, on my account, for righteousness' sake, in verse 10. Jesus does not say, blessed are the persecuted, but blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. And so there's something else here in verse 12, he says, and this is the hard part. He says, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. All of these revilings, these persecutions, he says, rejoice and be glad. And if we were to go over to Luke's account of the Beatitudes and the sermon here, he says, rejoice and leap for joy. Leap for joy. That's another one that doesn't seem to make sense, does it? It's strange. It seems so backwards. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Well, Jesus gives two different reasons why we should rejoice and be glad when we are persecuted. Your reward in heaven is great. Your reward is great in heaven. If you're persecuted because you're living the way that is described here by Jesus, a reward is coming in heaven. We will receive a reward for all of these persecutions. And Jesus said it's not small, it's great. It's a great reward. Nothing done for the glory of God will ever go unrewarded. And then there's a second reason that he has for us here that we should rejoice. Not only do we have a great reward, but also we are in great company. Because for, they, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Think about the prophets and think about all of the trials that they went through. Think about Jeremiah, think about Isaiah, David, and on and on we could go with different people in the Old Testament who experienced great, great trials. And so we are in great company. 
as well as having a great reward. And so Jesus says rejoice when that happens. We can even leap for joy when that happens, when we are being persecuted for righteousness' sake, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so just as we wind down here, what we see is that the Beatitudes are progressive. We see them building one upon the other and each leading to the other. And being poor in spirit reflects the right attitude that we should have in our sinful condition, which should lead us then to mourn over our sin, to be meek and to be gentle, to hunger and thirst after righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, and to be a peacemaker. And when we have those qualities, we will be a rebuke to the world, and the world will not like it, and we will face persecution. Just like our Lord faced persecution, just like many faced persecution in church history. Perhaps you've heard of the account of John Chrysostom, who was a preacher in the fourth century, who preached very strongly against sin. And that upset a lot of people, upset a lot of people in his culture, upset a lot of people in the church, and it even upset the empress at the time. And so he was hauled before the emperor And he was called to account for this. And they said, he's got to stop doing this or face banishment. And his response was, you cannot banish me for the world is my father's house. So the emperor said, then I will slay you. No, but you cannot, said Chrysostom, for my life is hid with God in Christ. Your treasures will be confiscated was the next threat from the emperor. And John replied, That cannot be either. My treasures are in heaven where none can break through and steal. Then I'll drive you from man and you will have no friends left was the final warning from the emperor. And Chrysostom said, that you cannot do either. For I have a friend in heaven who has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So Chrysostom was banished. He was banished from one city to another city, eventually to the Black Sea, But he didn't make it. He died along the way there. But he died believing the promises of God and he died and fulfilled all of those promises of God that were promised to him in eternity. And so we see that he was persecuted. We see many others in church history persecuted. You face persecutions perhaps even in your own life. Perhaps they're much more subtle than these physical things that we see pictured in in the Bible and in the lives of people in church history. In Fox's Book of Martyrs, we see all kinds of things, grotesque things that are happening to people and persecutions. We don't face those yet. We don't face those kinds of physical trials, but we face various other subtle persecutions that happen. And so we are persecuted in similar ways to which our Lord was persecuted. And we will receive a reward like Jesus received his reward a name above all names, and who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's been exalted. He has the name above all names, a name at which every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. And so we can rejoice and leap for joy when we are persecuted, because so were the prophets, and so was the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, we do ask that you would help us to live a life of faithfulness before you. That we truly would seek to live out the Beatitudes. That we would seek to be more and more like Christ each and every day. 
that the mercy that we see here that has been extended to us, that we would truly seek to extend that to others. And if we have disagreements one with another, that we would be peacemakers in those relationships, that we would have the the courage and the ability by your spirit to be able to go to people and to confess areas of sin that we have and to be able to reconcile with different people. And so we pray that you would help us to live these things out for your glory, for your great name we pray, amen.